Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. I love you so much. Thanks so much for being here, all of you. It's just great to see you. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. We're in a great place of scripture. I guess you know I'm going to say that, but we are. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Unbelievable place in Scripture. The reason I say that is because what we are having is the greatest privilege, and that is to see how a church is formed. And let's face it, the Lord has kind of placed us here. We're getting our feet underneath us, so to speak. We're becoming the church, hopefully, that God wants us to become. And He has set down guidelines, and we're following them best we know how. He has told the apostles, these are my orders. Remember He said that in chapter 1 and verse 2. Here are the orders you are to do. And then Peter goes and they all get filled with the Spirit of God. They start speaking in tongues. They're speaking in languages that, uh, that, that people could understand their dialect. And all of a sudden they see the movement of God amongst these guys. And then Peter gives a message as we studied in chapter 2. And is the first message he gives on the day of Pentecost. And thousands, 3,000 people come to Christ. And boom, they've got themselves a mega church. And here they are with this church, and how are they to function? And they're to function, the Bible says so darn clearly, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, there's, there's something that was special in the group. There was, a, there was a devotion. There was a continual devotion. And we thought that was so important that I spoke on that just for one Sunday. Just the whole idea of let's be continually devoted. And then the following Sunday, we took a look at what does a church make itself of? A church is made up of people that are continually devoted to four things. That's church. The apostles' teaching. Because unless you and I, hey Fred, unless you and I know, unless we know the Word of God, we're not going to know and we're not going to be the church that God wants us to be. So we have to be continually devoted to the Word of God, to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, we have to be continually devoted to fellowship amongst one another. In other words, we have to be encouraging one another lifting each other up, supporting one another. The, the Bible uses the example that, that people were giving uh, beyond anything that they ever did before. They were had nothing. Everything was in common. They just had a, a, a love for one another. As there was a need in the congregation, they gave. And let's, let's take a look at it very seriously. When they came to Christ in those days, when they were a Jewish person and they came to Christ, they were no longer a Jew, so they were kind of... Uh, ostracized and the same for someone who was a Gentile they they came to this place in the middle they came to this place where there was life in Christ and there needed to be fellowship because they needed the support of one another because they weren't going to get support out there in the community in which they lived after that and I think the most important thing thirdly well no the most important thing I think is the word of God but thirdly, they said there needs to be the breaking of bread. There needs to be communion. Communion did two very wonderful things, very specific things. One, it gave them a remembrance of who Jesus Christ was in their lives. That he was the very ultimate of all the things that would happen in their lives. That he is their Lord and Savior. But it also did something that I thought was critical within the body of Christ. To keep this oneness, to keep this fellowship that they have together, this of in one accord, there was the breaking of bread which made them, which allowed them to, to um, uh, examine themselves, to see if there were any sin in themselves. Because it says, we do not take the 
the communion. We do not take communion haphazardly. We are to take it very seriously. We're to, to examine our own selves. Because if there's something, God forbid, that I have against you in this congregation, before I take communion, I've got to make that right. I've got to go to my brother or my sister and say, you know, forgive me. I have something against you. Or if I know that they have something against me, I go to them and say, please forgive. Or, you know, let's work this out. Let's have this one accord within the body of Christ. So the apostles' teaching to fellowship where they uplifted, encouraged one another, supported each other. And then this breaking of bread where they had this unity that continued within the body of Christ because they were easy to forgive one another and to seek and to get forgiveness. And then fourthly, they were to pray. And that's where we find them today. Today, it's the, the third, it's, it's the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. They prayed at three different times, morning, noon, and later in the afternoon, three o'clock. And they're going now to the temple to pray. And it is, it is my opinion, although it doesn't say this, that there's, all of them are going. They, they were continually devoted to prayer. So I'm assuming they're all going to this place in prayer. And as they go to the temple to pray, along the road there, there was a, a place called the Beautiful Gate. And at the beautiful gate, many, many people would, would go. If they, were, um, if they were lame, someone would carry them there. If they could get there on their own, they did. And they were beggars. They were the people that were asking for help. They couldn't work anymore. They were um, helpless, hopeless people. And so they were there begging for some sort of help. And, and here we find Peter and John, amongst all the others, I'm sure, but it's very interesting within Scripture as we're going to see today, Peter and John were very close to one another. When the Lord originally found the disciples, Peter and John were in business together in fishing. We learn that in the book of Luke. Also, we learn in the book of Luke, when Jesus Christ sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover for the whole group of them. And remember when, when Mary came back and she said, Jesus, remember when, uh, when he came uh, alive after three days in the tomb and she saw him and she went back and told everybody he's alive? Do you remember the two people that they specifically say go running to the tomb together? And it's Peter and John. And John being younger, it says he gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. He has this respect. Peter, I believe, was the leader of the guys. And, and, and Peter went in first. So Peter and John are together as they normally were, and here they are going to the temple where we pick up now the story. We pick up and watch. I'm going to tell you one other thing because we can't get to it today, but it'll be the lead until next week. You won't want to miss next week because it is Peter's message. It is incredible. They are going and they are going to perform a miracle so as to draw a crowd to verify what they're about to say. And so what takes place today is this miracle happens. Miracle of miracles. They heal through the strap. This man who has been lame for 40 plus years. We know that from chapter 4, verse 22. He had been for 40 plus years taken to the, this, this beautiful gate to, to, to beg for alms. And here they come across him. And the reason that this happens, the whole reason of what takes place from verses 1 to 11 is to set up the message that Peter is going to give from verse 12 to the end of this chapter. With that in mind now, let's read. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame with his, from his mother's womb was being carried along, 
whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said in verse 6, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by his right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were straightened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate at the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, watch, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. When we go on next week, we're going to see. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? And we'll talk about that next week. But it's interesting. I don't think Peter had any intention or any idea of what was going to take place that day. I don't think he went away from his house thinking, Whoa, I'm going to heal this guy and then I'm going to preach to thousands of people and 5,000 people are going to come to know Christ. Now it was just another day in his life. Another day when he just was doing what was natural in his life. And that was praising God. He had a continual devotion to God. And so when it was a time of prayer, he was going to go and pray in the temple. And all of a sudden, this all occurs. It's an amazing place in Scripture. Now, what I would like to do for you and for me, since we are kind of getting our feet under us as a church, and since we know what we, this is what we stand upon, uh, apostles' teaching, uh, fellowship, uh, communion, and prayer... That's what makes up a church. All the other things are, are just added things that maybe you are inclined to want to do. And so we'll do as a church as, as we see fit. But those are the four basics of a church. But what I want us to see as we set ourselves up as a church is to know what, is, what can we expect from God and what are some expectations that are not truly ours. That other people say, well, this is what God should do in your life. The point is today is what, what about healing? Where does healing fit in within the body of Christ today in the church in which we live? I'd like to study that with you, so please pray with me and let's see what God has to say. Father, please, would you do us the most greatest of favors, and that is to open up our eyes so that we might behold absolutely wonderful things from your law. Teach us, Father, as only you can. Therefore, I ask, Father, that you would move me aside. Literally hide, Father, the one that gives the message behind the wonders of the words that we have just read as we see what took place or is about to take place in the life of Peter and John and this dear man who you don't even name here. You just call him a certain man who had been born lame. A man that was hopeless. Had no hope, Father, of what to do in his life. Here he is begging for food and uh, 
and scraps and maybe a little money so that he could survive. And what you want to do is give him so much more. It makes me think, Father, that some of us are begging for scraps when you want to give us so much more. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to, uh, to study your word and to get to know you more and also to function as a body of believers. And so teach us, Lord, as only you can. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. In the life of Jesus Christ, he performed miracle after miracle after miracle. It was, it was the part and parcel of who he was. And as you study and you see Jesus Christ and you really observe why does he do what he do, what he does, is he, he does the miracles to verify the words that he has spoken. In John chapter 3, verse 2, there was a, a teacher, the teacher of Israel. His name was Nicodemus. Remember? Nicodemus came to Jesus Christ at nighttime in John chapter 3, verse 2. And he came to him and he says, here's what we know. Now I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, this verse. He says, here's what we know. We know that you are a teacher that comes from God. How did they know that? He goes on to say, for no one can do the things that you do, no one can do the miracles that you do, unless God be with them. Now how they knew that he was a teacher that came from God was the miracles that he did. That's always the way it is. The miracles verified the announcement or the proclamation of who Jesus Christ was. Same thing with the apostles. When Jesus chose his apostles in, um, in, um, yeah, in John chapter 14, verse 11. I should have trusted that. In John chapter 14, verse 11, Philip comes to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to Philip, know that I am in the Father and know that the Father is in me. If you can't deal with that, I'm paraphrasing, if you can't deal with that, then believe because of the signs that I do. Here's how the verse really reads. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works that I do. You see, the works that Jesus Christ gave verification of who he was and what he had to say. The works, the miracles, the signs, the wonders were done to verify the words that came from our Lord. So as the same thing with the apostles. The Lord granted the apostles in the early church to be recognized by and through the miracles that they performed. This one's going to be a major one. Paul wrote, look at, uh, do, you, do you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Hold your place, of course, in Acts. We'll come right back. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and look at verse 12. Paul gives us the people in Corinth, an understanding of who is a true apostle. There were a lot of people that came and said, I speak for God. I, I speak for God. And, and Paul says, no, no, you can't believe them. He says, here's what a true apostle is. Watch. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul writes, the sign of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. That verified that they were apostles. That verified that they spoke for God. 
That gave people reason to believe in them, listen to them, and they fell under their authority because of the miracles that they did. Now, contrary to some teaching today, the early church, the church that we're studying here in the book of Acts, was not a miracle-working church. What they were were a church that had miracle-working apostles. The apostles were the ones that did the signs. Look at back at, at chapter 2 and look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a, feeling a sense of awe, that's amongst the church, and many wonders and signs were taking place where? Through the church? No, no, through the apostles. The apostles were the ones that were doing the miracles. So the early church was not necessarily a miracle-working church. I think they were much like we are today. What set them apart, what made them an amazing place, was the, the miracles that the apostles were doing. And to study Scripture closely, what we're going to find is the gift of healing, the true gift of healing that was found in the early church was limited to the apostles and any of their close associates in ministry. And when they disappeared, when they died off, so did the original true gift of healing. Now let's take a look at it. In every sense, the gift of healing was done to draw people to Christ. As we see at the end of this, at the end here in, in chapter 3, when everybody saw this guy healed, it says they ran, look at verse 11, they ran together, and when Peter saw the crowd, he realized that the miracle that just happened was done to verify the Word of God. Note again, look at chapter 5. Very interesting, and very. we'll have to take a time to study it. It's this story about Ananias and Sapphira, who, uh, Ananias and Sapphira who, who for some reason lied to God. Don't know why. But an amazing miracle took place. First, Ananias killed over and died. Uh, Peter said, you know, you're going to go to be with the Lord right now. And, and Sapphira came in and she said the same thing. And he said the same to her. And they buried them both. And there became like a sweeping fear on, of respect and awe of these guys. Rightfully so. Look at chapter 5 and look at verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, at the hands of the apostles, note, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. There was a, 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 a togetherness in the body of Christ. None of them dared to associate with them, them meaning the apostles. However, the people held them, the apostles, in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. People were coming to Christ all the time in this early church. Verse 17. Let's jump a little bit ahead. The high priests rose up. Those were the religious leaders of the day who denied Christ. They wanted nothing to do with them. And as we're going to show you in a moment, it was because the hardness of their hearts. They had enough information. They just didn't want to give in. So it says the high priest, verse 17, rose up among with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and they put them in a public jail. But, verse 19, an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and took them out. And he said, 
go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. In other words, the miracle that just took place concerning Ananias and Sapphira did not go unnoticed by God himself. He wanted to send the apostles into the now the temple to teach, to verify the words of what has just taken place through this miracle. Verse 21, And upon hearing this, they entered to the temple about daybreak, and they began to teach what they were called to do. And when the high priest and his associate had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought out. They don't know, the, the, the Sadducees, the, the high priest, they don't know that they've just left the prison. They don't know that the prison doors were opened up during the night and they just went their way merrily. But it says in verse 22, the officers who came didn't find them in the prison. They returned and they reported back and they said in verse 23, we found the prison house locked quite securely. We found the guards standing at the door, but when we opened up, we didn't find them inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. The captain, along with the officers, proceeded to bring them back without violence. Here's why. Because they were afraid of the people lest they should be stoned. Look, there was a respect amongst these guys in the community that went beyond anything they had ever seen before. They're jealous of them because they're doing things that are attracting people but they want them overdone with. They want them in prison. They want to kill them just like they did Jesus. They don't want anything to do with what they're saying. And so they say in verse 28, Look, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, I'll paraphrase it for myself. Whether I should listen to you or not, that's one thing. What I'm going to do with my life is I'm going to listen with God. I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. Folks, that's a very personal verse to me. That has become a very personal verse to me. When someone asks you to do something that you know is contrary to the Word of God, then it comes a time where you have to make a stand. That particular verse means more to me than I can ever express to you. Maybe someday I'll tell you why. But in my heart of hearts, I tell you this. I will much rather obey God than men. And I'll listen to His voice every time, regardless of the cost. So they go and they say this. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thanks. I'm sure you feel the same way. I'm not a hero here. We're all in this. But if you noted after verse 25, from verse 25, after they performed these miracles, the apostles were standing, given orders by God through the angels to teach the people. The miracles confirmed their teaching. But here's what's so important. When Paul got older and Scripture was finally completed, he didn't have this miracle anymore. He didn't have the miracle of healing like he once did. And I want to show you, prove to you, that this is absolutely truth. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, when you turn into 2 Timothy, listen. Anywhere Peter went, anywhere Paul went, they healed everybody that came their way. Peter was so infamous about healing people 
that when he would walk down the streets, the rumor was, Peter's out. And they would bring on sick people from their houses, lay them on the streets, just hoping that his shadow would hit them and they would be healed, just by his presence. They were healing people left and right. Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles. Now we come to the life of Paul, and I believe this is written for our understanding. It says in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul was with a friend of his called uh, Trophimus. Trophimus. It says in verse 20, Erastus remained in Corinth, but Trophimus... Now, I want Paul says these words, and I'm sure, sadly, but Trophimus, Paul writes, I left sick in Miletus. Is that the way you say it? Miletus. Miletus. Something like that. I looked it up, studied it, studied it, studied it, but now it's gone. It's gone to that place. (laughs) I believe it saddened Paul's heart to leave this friend of his sick. Look now at 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of Paul's dearest, most, most trusted associate was a fellow by the name of Timothy. Paul led Timothy to Christ. He was his son in the faith. He had Timothy do great things in the church. When Timothy was in the church... Paul came to him in 1 Timothy 5.23, and here's the counsel he gave Timothy for his ailments. He says, No longer drink water exclusively, Timothy, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your what? Your frequent, not, not, not just an ailment, but your frequent ailments. Let me ask you something. Why would Paul not heal someone he loved as obviously as he loved Timothy? Someone who is so critical to the church. Why did he not say, look it, I'm not in your area, but go to some local faith healer. Let them lay hands on you and you'll be okay. With enough faith, Timothy, you'll be okay. Paul didn't do that. I believe in my heart of hearts he no longer could. I believe he would have healed him like that if he still could. No, the gift of healing, as is expressed in the book of Acts, is no longer in existence as it was then today. It started to move away once this was given to us. Because healings was done so as to verify, thus saith the Lord. I shouldn't probably put this here. Healings were done, so when a, fa- when a person said, Thus saith the Lord, they say, Of course, he did a miracle. But today, this is why we at church, you and I, this is why every church ought to study the Bible line on line, so you can know what is the guy saying, what is the person who is teaching me saying. Is it verif- verifiable? Can I say that what he is saying is truth from God's Word? And this verifies whether a person is speaking for God or not. Not anymore, the miracles. Does that mean, though, listen closely, church, because we want to pray, we want to expect miracles. Does that mean that God does not heal today? Of course not. He heals today. 
but not with the same intensity, not with the supernatural healing abilities that was given to the apostles. Today, He heals people in response to our prayer and His sovereignty, His will. It's His choice. I want to prove that to you as well. Look back at chapter 3 in the book of Acts. And let's get to the very text of where we are. This astounding miracle from verses 1 to 11 of a man that was born lame gathers such a curious and large crowd that it prepares them to hear Peter's sermon. Thus, what is going to happen in a moment, as we read here, happened long ago then, but as we're reading it, in a moment, what has happened is again, God is confirming Peter and the rest of the apostles as his representatives, as his voice to the church. As I've already mentioned to you, it appears that Peter and John were very close friends because we always see them together. As I already mentioned, they went together to the to temple to pray. Uh, the Lord in Luke chapter uh, 22, verse 8, sent John and Peter to prepare the meal of Passover. In, in Luke chapter 5, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners in business with Peter, so they were business associates. In Mark, it tells us that, that, that Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And so, as it was their custom in verse 1, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 9 o'clock in the morning, around noon, and about 3 o'clock, there was times of prayer. The ninth hour was 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John were going to pray, most likely with the rest of the church. As I say to you, it wasn't just them. I'm sure it was a crowd because they were to be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So they're all going towards the temple. Now, I want you to know this. They come upon this man. This man, it says in verses 2, 3, and 4, who was born lame. He was absolutely hopeless. He was a beggar. And he was, as it says in chapter 4, verse 22, he was 40 plus years old. And he is begging for alms. Now, do you think in your wildest dreams he was the only one there that was begging? I don't think so. I would venture a guess that there was hundreds of guys and girls there, ladies and men, that were begging for alms. I don't think he was the only one. Not, not in my wildest dreams do I think he's the only one. And so as he's begging for bread, Peter and John look at him and they say, look at us. So obviously he's speaking to all the people that are going by, but they want his full attention. They say, look at us. And this lame man must have thought, whoa, this is good. I'm going to receive something, maybe something to eat, maybe a little bit of money to help me get along, but I'm going to receive something. And so in verse 6, Peter says to him, silver and gold we don't have. But what we do have, we're going to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Like all of God's work, this miracle is based on God's sovereign will. There had to be hundreds, I think hundreds of people there begging. 
Why did this one fellow be chosen out? Why was this man? I, you and I will never know. You won't know that the answer to that question. But he undoubtedly was expecting something from these, these people, something from Peter and, and John, something to help him. <clears throat> but instead, when he was asking for a morsel, morsel? Is that the right way of saying that? Just a little bit? They wanted to give him what? So much more? In his wildest dream, he didn't think he was going to heal his infirmity. He's been this way since he was born. In his wildest dreams, he was thinking this much when God is thinking this much. You know what that tells me? I think you and I do the same thing with our prayers sometimes. I think as a church, we ask for this much when God wants to give us this much. This man had no idea what was about to take place in his life. By the way, this, this lame beggar he had little reason to believe so strongly in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus hadn't changed his medical condition. And like probably everyone else in Jerusalem, he had heard that Jesus was crucified as a blasphemer. He must have found Peter's use of the the name of Jesus Christ perplexing in the name of. You know, when you say in the name of, what you're saying is by virtue of, of this person's character, by virtue of this person's authority, by virtue of this person's power, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Jesus Christ described, described Jesus as the Messiah from Nazareth. Think, to do something in the name of Jesus Christ means to do something consistent with the will of God. You and I can't call upon the name of Jesus Christ and then haphazardly ask for anything. We've got to be consistent with the will of God. We've got to be consistent that we would do what He would do if He were here with us. We need to act in His authority. We need to act in His power. What Peter did was to call upon Jesus Christ, who was, not too long ago, belittled, crucified. Nonetheless, Peter said, I call on the name of Jesus Christ to heal you. I think you already know this, but not even it wasn't even a thought that Peter was doing this for any credit on his own. He was doing this because of God, so that people might know the Lord. Take a look. From verses 7 to 10, this beggar's confusion, if he was confused, didn't last long. His healing was immediate. His healing was complete. His healing was noticed by everyone. Verse 7, seizing him by his right hand, Peter raised him up. And what? Immediately. Immediately, folks. Immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And it says in verse 8, with a leap, with a leap, he stood upright. He began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Next week we're going to see leaping is a key word. Because Isaiah predicted that when the Messiah came, when the Messiah would come, in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse... Is it up there? No. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. When the Messiah comes, it says the lame will leap like a deer. So it's not very, 
it's not just incidental that this guy is jumping and he's 40 plus years old and he's like a little kid. He is leaping through the portico to the temple and everyone is noticing him. It says in verse 9, all the people saw him walking. All the people saw him praising God. And they were taking note of this. He was the one they took note that used to sit at the beautiful gate at the temple and beg alms. And now it says they were filled, verse 10, they were filled with wonder and amazement. What happened to this guy? What happened to him? You see, the genuine gift of healing, in contrast to these these charlatans who, who say they have the gift of healing, the genuine gift of healing resulted in an immediate cure. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and study the times that Jesus Christ healed anyone, there's always one word that accompanies all the healings. It was immediately. Immediately they rose up. Immediately they woke up. Immediately this. Immediately that. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, Scripture knows nothing of progressive healings. As soon as they felt, as soon as this guy felt the strength surge through his feet and his ankles, with a leap he stood up straight and he began to walk. His symptoms were instantaneously and completely gone. He was praising God, leaping for joy. One one writer writes it this way. God has two dwelling places. One is in heaven and the other is in the heart of a thankful person. I like that. Two dwelling places in heaven and the heart of a thankful follower of Him. The miracle was a testimony. It was a testimony to God because all the people saw Him praising God. Verse 9. It was also a public testimony because everyone there, as it says at the end of verse 10, were filled with wonder and amazement. What happened to this guy? This miracle was undeniable, folks. Undeniable. You couldn't sweep it under the rug. Look at Acts chapter 4. Even the, the, the religious leadership of the day, Acts chapter 4, look what it says to them. And the leadership of that day, they couldn't deny it. It says in verse 13, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. I love that verse. I got that so underlined in my Bible. I got that. that, that that's, that's it. They were uneducated. They were untrained. They were marveling. The people were marveling. They began to recognize them of having been with Jesus. Because it says in verse 14, they saw the man who had been healed standing with them. They had nothing to say in reply. Verse 15, when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began conferring with one another. And here's what they said. Listen to the hardness of their hearts. Listen to the the inability for them to stop trying to take it for themselves and give their heart to Christ. It says in verse 16, it is an amazing verse. It just says so much. It says, what should we do with these men? For the fact that is for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through all of them is apparent to everyone who lives in Jerusalem. We cannot, what? We can't deny that this happened. Goodness gracious, then, fall on your knees and accept the Lord. What's wrong with their hearts? What's wrong with a heart when you hear God speak to you and you just put it aside? You kind of just deny it or, or, or move it away. But they said, look, we can't deny it. It's undeniable. This took place. What I can't understand is why didn't they then, therefore, fall on their knees and accept Christ? You see, God denies miracles 
to do a couple things, to attract attention and to point people to himself and to point people to his divine truth. Truth. Truth needs to be known. You and I need to know that two and two make four. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and he alone. We need to know that. And when we hear that, we need to investigate, see if that's true or not. There's only one way you and I all know if that's true or not, and that's to study the Word of God. We can't listen to some far-fetched ideas of a cult member or some other person that doesn't say, well, you don't, you don't need Christ. Good night. That's, that's outdated. We're, we're living in the 21st century. <clears throat> you just need to be spiritually aware. I laugh when I say that because I, it just boggles my mind. Spiritually aware. You need to be spiritually aware. Those that uh, kind of kind of talk about that. Ah, never mind. That was going I was gonna go into a whole other message. It's just out of it's just out of control. The man who has healed stood with the apostles. It says in verse 11, clinging, just clinging to them. I would be too, by golly, just being healed of that for not being able to walk for 40 some years, and now all of a sudden can run and jump and leap for joy. I might cling to those guys myself. He became living proof that a miracle had taken place. And now the stage is set from verses 12 forward for Peter to give a message that's going to just knock their socks off. This crippled man asked for money. No, this crippled man asked for something. Mm, Food, money, something. He got so much more. Don't put a limit to what God is going to do in your life. But what I really love about this story is that the beggar, the beggar was so overjoyed with what happened to him that he couldn't contain himself. I'm going to come down. Last service I jumped. (laughs) My back hurts now. (laughs) I can't hate. I hate getting older. This beggar, I get it. Thank you. Oh, oh no. <laughs> this beggar, this beggar was so overjoyed with what he received that everyone knew that there was a change in his life. Now, you and I could say, well, you know, I've never had a physical healing like that. But every single one of us here in this room, if you've come to Christ, have had a spiritual healing. Every single one of us that know the Lord have something that we need to be overjoyed about, and that is our eternal salvation. And we can't allow our circumstances and our difficulties to to drag us down. I am preaching now at me. You can go home. You can turn me off if you want now. I'm preaching at myself because I'm such a negative person when I'm not here. Sometimes I discipline myself so much for not for allowing myself or someone else to steal my joy. I want to tell you a story. It has nothing to do with Scripture. It comes from the Gospel of Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> when I was working in the ministry with the athletes, I've never seen a person take a defeat more profoundly just just lose everything. When Tommy lost, I swear, sometimes I think he'd leave the ballpark and go get, commit, commit suicide. He was so distraught. They say one time, I didn't see this firsthand, I'm, but this I heard enough and I asked Tommy about it. One time they were playing a game in San Francisco. 
And Jimmy Campanis was here in the first service. He was sitting right where you were. Jimmy Campanis' dad, Al Campanis, was the general manager at the time of the, of the Dodgers. Um, and he, they, they were going to experiment, put Pedro, uh, who? Guerrero. They were going to put Pe- Pedro Guerrero to play third base. At this game, they had Pedro Guerrero at third and Sachs at second. If you can remember, if you follow baseball at all, Sachs, he could not throw a ball from me to you straight. He couldn't. So in this game, they lose because Pedro Guerrero makes, I don't know, two, three errors, has a terrible game. And Tommy is a rate. He is just, he is beside himself. He is so angry. So when the team comes in, he's going to yell at them. What he does is he yells at Sachs. Sachs, I think, as I hear the story, went like three for four, had a great game. Almost won it by himself, but they lost it because Pedro made these errors. But Tommy don't yell at Pedro. He yells at Sachs. Sachs, you're this, and Sachs, you're that, and Sachs, why do I have you on this team? I don't know. And he just went off on Sachs. I asked him later why. He said, if I yelled at Pedro, he would have been in the tank for a month. <laughs> he says, you couldn't yell at Pedro. It would hurt his feelings. But Sachs, he says, Sachs didn't listen to me anyways. He could care less. That's a true story. He could care less what I'm saying. So I had to yell at somebody, so I figured Sachs is perfect. <laughs> he said one time, he says, I went to Pedro once when he was experimenting at third base, and I said, Pedro, what do you think of when the play is in order? Like he, he got a ground ball and he threw it to first base instead of throwing it to second to start a double play. He says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking when you're in the position playing third? And Pedro says, I think don't let the ball be hit to me. <laughs> Am I glad you laughed? That's a good thing to laugh at. That is funny. That's a funny thing to say. Now, he said to him, no, I know. Okay, you don't want to hit you. Then what do you think? He said, oh, I don't want to hit the sacks either. (laughs) Tommy said, he said, that's the team I have. (laughs) I asked Tommy about this, and he told me that story, and it was just, it was phenomenal to hear him tell it. He's the best storyteller. And I said, but Tommy, I said, when you leave the ballpark sometimes at night after a loss, I've never seen anybody take it so hard. You know, you have 162 games. You're going to lose some. He says, man, he says, every loss eats at me. I said, but one thing I notice, when you come back to the ballpark the next day, I've never, you look like you, the team has won 100 games in a row. You act like it's the best day and everything's great and we, we're going to win because we're on a hot streak. Why do you do that? He says, because I never wanted my team to see me down. I don't want them to see me down before they play a game. And I thought to myself when I heard that, and I think it fits with this message, I think if a person could do that with a ball club, how should we act with our Lord observing us? How should our attitude be when we stand in witness with Him? What should our attitude be? Should we not be like this man who is just healed from a sickness for a lifetime. Some of us have been healed and we have eternal life. Should we not have joy? Even though there might be some difficulties that you're going through. One of the greatest things, we sang a song. Can you throw the words up again, Ken, you think? It says, because I don't know, bless, why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why so downcast? Oh, my soul. Put your hope in God. 
put your hope in God. Folks, if you're feeling down, a miracle might not happen to you because that ability to do miracles today is not the same like it was when the church first initiated itself. We don't have the ability to just lay our hands on you and say, you'll be healed completely. We can just trust that God will do it, maybe in time. And we'll pray for you. But every single one of us have the privilege of having joy. Like this man born lame. We can walk out of here if we choose. Leaping for joy. Praising God. Because we have salvation. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for scripture. Thank you for our ability to read and to see what you're saying through the very word of God so that we can bring sense to the church today. <clears throat> we do not have, Father, the ability to completely heal today like they did then. And so we, we, can't, we can't dream for that. But we certainly have the ability to pray and ask for your will to be done in a person's life. And Father, we've seen you do miracles. Miracle after miracle in our midst. But the one thing we do have in common with those people in the first century church is we have the ability to leap for joy. We have the ability, dear Father, to rejoice over the fact that you are our Savior and you have given us eternal life. May we rejoice in that, Father, I pray. And Father, would you be kind enough to just let the people know how much I love them? I love these people, Father, so much. Sometimes it hurts. I just love them. I pray you'll bless us as we go from here, Father. Wherever you may take us, bless us. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you all with all of my heart. Have a great, great day. Thank you. Thank you.